Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential television. You better take care of yourself or you can't take care of anybody else. Once my glass is full, everything that is left is for everyone else. They can have it all. But I should first fill my glass. Welcome back to Fill in the Blanks. I have a really special guest today that I think you're going to learn a lot from and make part of your life going forward. I'm talking about Dr. Corey Yeager. He is an NBA psychotherapist and author of a great book called How Am I Doing? I'm going to tell you more about the book in a little bit. It's 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself. I've read it cover to cover. And I'm going to talk about not all 40 of these conversations because I want you to buy the book and read it. You don't just need to read it. You need to use it. But we're going to talk about that today. Dr. Yeager is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's been focusing his therapeutic practice primarily serving the African-American community. But what he has to say, his wisdom cuts across all socioeconomic stratas, all races, colors, creeds, doesn't matter. He's very well-trained, got his Ph.D. from the University of Minnesota, and his research emphasis centers on better understanding the plight of African-American relationships while educating service providers to utilize the family system context while facilitating meaningful change both personally and in their professional lives. I'm saying that because what we're going to talk about today can make a difference for you as a partner, as a parent, as a professional in whatever you're doing. As a school-based mental health provider, Dr. Yeager really worked tirelessly as a therapist in the Hennepin County Juvenile Detention Center through the Minneapolis Public Schools. He's really eclectic in the things that he does. His cornerstone mode of therapy is steeped in trauma-based informed care and really takes a narrative approach. He allows his clients and the families from which they come to remain the experts in their lives. And when I say he allows that, he actually requires it. He requires you to star in your own life, which is, you know, something that I've talked about a lot, which I guess is why his work really resonated with me. He's really working with the merging of his two passions, which is athletics. He's got four boys, and athletics has been currency in this family's lives, as it has been in my life when I was growing up and didn't have anything else, any other kind. I sure didn't have monetary currency, that's for sure. He's a team therapist and life coach for the Detroit Pistons within the NBA and supports the entire organization from a systemic and contextual stance. And I really want to talk about that with regard to professional athletes. You've seen him. You may have heard of him. 
with regard to the Oprah Winfrey Network, to NYU, to Detroit, really working with just getting people to live more fulfilling lives. And again, the book is How Am I Doing? 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself. So, Dr. Yeager, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I could talk more about you and what you do, but I think they want to hear from you. So I'm going to shut up and let you talk a little bit. (laughs) Well, it is absolutely a pleasure to get a chance to sit with you, Doc. Um, Watched your work for many years um, and model a lot of uh, my approach, just kind of tuning in to see the way in which you go about that work um, and being of service to families, uh, as you said, primarily the African-American community, but really um, any family system um, is always exciting for me, um, and it, it is a space in which I find my energy and my passion. So I appreciate the opportunity today, Doc. How did you get on this path, doing the things that you're doing? What got you interested in helping people actualize themselves and be all of who they can be? So my grandmother, um, when I was a young kid, at about age, I think I was about 10 years old, she pulled me to the side and said, son, you have a gift. And the reason I'm telling you that I see this gift in you is because I have it, and it's it's called discernment. Um, I didn't really know what my grandmother was talking about, but I had watched her be a person that people came to continuously, engaged with, asked questions, and she moved with such a wisdom, Dr. Phil, um, that I was intrigued. I don't think I understood why I was intrigued, but I was. Um, So I think I, early on, had a sense that engaging with others, supporting others was and would be important to me. Um, And then I found a way to couple that intrigue with academic pursuit. Um, I had played football at Long Beach State out here in L.A., but didn't get my degree while I was going to school. I thought I was going to be a pro offensive lineman and make millions of dollars. That didn't happen, and then I didn't have my degree Um, So found my way back into the academic endeavors. My wife pushed me, kept saying to me, honey, you have to get your degree so the boys know that we both have our degree. I was working at Ford Motor Company on the line, working, busting my butt. Um, So started going back to school at night and fell in love relatively quickly with the psychological realm. Um, It was really interesting to me. Uh, And as I pursued that and got that BA, uh, I thought, maybe I should do therapy. I didn't really know what it entailed, um, but it was the best choice in my life. My wife pushed me to do that. and She's been a cornerstone to a lot of the things that I've pursued uh, over the course of my life. Well, you're working with pro athletes now, the Detroit Pistons. And I wrote an op-ed piece not too long ago for Sportico. It had to do with the NFL draft, I said, the NFL's just getting ready to mint a new class of millionaires, and I wanted to talk about what they're not telling them. What they're not telling them is that they're going to have, on average, just a little over three years of a career, and that 80% of them, two years after being out of the league, are going to be in financial distress and or bankrupt. But they don't tell them that, but yet that's what happens. I'm really interested in your take about this because you and I both played Division One football, and even at that level, we know how disciplined you have to be, 
how committed you have to be, how dedicated you have to be. Now take it to the next level, the professional level, which is what, 2 3% of those that play college football make it at that level. So we're talking about intelligent, dedicated, disciplined young men, but yet within five years, they're going to be in life and financial distress, depressed and out of control. How's that happening? You know, I think there are so many factors, Dr. Phil, that go into what you just said. Um, And one of the leading factors is um, all of a sudden, I'll just briefly tell a quick story. I had a a kid that that got drafted, and he got drafted, and we were sitting and talking after the draft, and he said, Doc, before the draft, I looked at my bank account. I couldn't even take a $20 bill out. I had $12 in my bank account. I get drafted. I sign. $12 $12 million in my bank account. But no one had discussed with him what that movement looked like and how that would play out and how you had to be financially astute and understanding that all of these people will be coming to you and you can spend it frivolously and lose it, or you can figure out a different way. There's no one really, Doc, having those deep conversations with them, maybe at a surface level. Um, at the rookie symposium, they may talk a little bit about it. Um, but oftentimes these young men are coming from financial situations where it was a struggle. And then all of a sudden I have all of this and I don't know what to do with it. And everyone wants a piece of it. So I think that balancing act is extremely difficult. And all the while that you're balancing that and trying to figure it out, you must perform. You said two to three years, four-year career is almost a long career in the NFL or the NBA these days. So no one is having these these extremely important conversations and the kids look back after four or five years and they've lost it all. They really have nothing to show. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. And a typical individual's lifetime earnings, even with a college degree, is less than a typical rookie in the NBA or NFL makes just in the two or three years that they're there. Shaq's a good friend of mine, and he oversimplified it a little bit, but not much. But he said when he first got a $20 million deal, he thought, okay, great. I got $5 million that I can go and buy a house in Georgia and $5 million, I can get a house for my mother and $5 million, I can get a house in California and then $5 million, I can just run and play with. (laughs) And he said, about October, they came and said, you got a $10 million tax bill here. And he was like, what? Yeah. Shaq's a brilliant guy. I'm sure you probably know him. And he's a smart guy. But he said, I was so naive. I thought, oh my God. I'm broke. I'm not just broke. I'm $10 million in debt. 
because nobody had sat down and said, okay, look, let's think about this. You, you, you got a $20 million contract here and you've got the money, but you don't have 20, you have 10 and you need to set this aside. And had he not been smart and resilient and able to do different things to start making money and supplementing in addition to that, he could have been one of those people that fell out, but he wasn't and he didn't. And the rest is history. We know he's done extremely well. But why don't they have you on every team? Why don't they have you talking to every player? Why are you not ubiquitous throughout sports because you're having these conversations. Yeah, I think, Doc, you hit on a number of points that are really important, one of which is the stigma that is associated with my work or the psychological world. Um, I think overall, as a major athlete, there's a stigma about the vulnerability of saying I'm struggling with something, especially in the in the psychological realm. So these guys are struggling, they don't realize that 20 million does not mean 20 million. 20 million means, as you said, 10 million. Um, and you're going to have a huge tax bill. No one's discussed that probably, Doc, because discussing that doesn't pay well. That discussion may not be what pays well, because what pays well is the exploitation of athletes, regardless of color, race, any of those things that there will always be folks lying in wait to exploit. And that can be for an entertainer, I mean, across the gamut. Um, so if they don't have one or two people that are firmly rooted and are really in their corner, they're left to the chance of, of that struggle, financial struggle um, kicking in. And that's what's happening time and time and time again. Are the role models the problem as young men? I'm talking about while they're in middle school or whatever. Are they looking at role models that have flash cars and flash lifestyles? Because I look at some of the lifestyles of these pro athletes and I'm thinking, I know I make more money than they do and I could not begin to afford that lifestyle. And they live it like it's going to last forever. Yeah. So, Doc, let's be clear on a point here that oftentimes, especially in the African-American community, all of the trinkets, the things that we may see as flashy, if you come from a community that has not had access, the accessibility into the financial means to, to have generate, build and, and hand off generational wealth is limited at best. So what we are fooled into thinking, the fool's gold is, if I can afford some way to get these trinkets, then others will see me as being wealthy or rich, even though I don't have the means to uphold that. So sometimes I think what becomes more important is um, almost the selling of a process that I have all of this. Um, the other thing, you use the term role model. And I think that a role model is extremely important. You've been a role model for me. You've never, I've never met you, but that you were a role model. Never knew who I was till this moment. I think what we are in need of, I talk about in the book, is a real model. Who are those real models in your life that you can turn to, look at, engage with, be curious with, be taught from their wisdom, and you have access to them more consistently? Because I had real models. My grandmother was a real model for me to develop this therapeutic sense. 
Um, so how do we find those real models and be curious with them, Doc? I think curiosity leads way to awareness. If I can be more aware um, financially, relationally, if I can become more aware, the chances that I make better and more informed, informed decisions increases exponentially. Um, so as a therapist, and you know, my job is not to change anyone. My job is to be curious with you and help raise the awareness around things that you may seek to change. I think that's really the cornerstone. You say that really well, though. It is a cornerstone, but it needs to be said in an understandable and really embraceable way. I love the way you say it. I look at the friends that I have in athletics, and there are a lot of them and I'm going to age myself now talking mm -hmm. about Emmett Smith and mm -hmm. Roger Staubach and some of these guys. Emmett and Roger are huge icons in sports. Emmett's right. the leading rusher in the history of the NFL, and Roger has the Super Bowl rings and stuff. Both of them have built generational wealth mm -hmm. by investing in real estate and entrepreneurial things like businesses and things like that. And so many of these young men are smart and industrious. If someone would just get to them and say, let's be smart and turn this 20 million into 200 million. And not to say, don't enjoy your life along the way. Yeah particularly if they've lived in poverty or done without for a long time. But it seems that somebody, maybe it's the league, maybe it's the colleges when they're captive in the classrooms or something, but someone needs to start taking the responsibility to say, rather than using these young men up for a short period of time when they can get peak performance, need to take responsibility to give them the tools to be successful long-term and after they're out of the league. 100%. I mean, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, you talked about um, having these type of discussions with athletes, and not just athletes, with, with young kids as they move into adulthood. Um, and one of the things that my grand you'll hear me talk about my grandmother all the time because her wisdom still rings deeply true for me. She always said, when you're talking to folks, even if you have this high education thing that you end up getting, always put the information down where the goats can get it. Get it down there where the goats can get at it, down at a level where it's engageable, it's conversational, um, and that people can walk away with something. So finding ways in which to incorporate a deeper sense of understanding what this financial stuff means. What will it look and feel like for me? What is generational wealth? How do you get it? And more importantly, once you get it, how do you keep it? Um, but we don't even have those conversations, Doc. I think we, we try to jump over the things and just say, hey, well, you should find a way. I think it's an important aspect to incorporate this type of learning early. The earlier, the better. If you're talking about, I'm talking about generational wealth with my sons and had been for a number of years. So this is not new information. This is not new territory for them to understand. So once you get the money to then begin to have the discussion, 
you're behind. Um, that's just not advantage. That's not an advantage for the individual. Yeah, you've got to get ahead of the curve. In your book, How Am I Doing? You pose 40 questions for people to ask themselves. And I love question number one and question number nine in particular. But question number one, you say, who is the most important person in your life? And most people are going to stop and think and all of that. But your suggested answer to that question and one I ascribe to wholeheartedly is it better be you. Better be. Because you better take care of yourself or you can't take care of anybody else. Isn't that simple, though, Doc? It really it, People think it's selfish to say me. Yeah. It's not selfish. I have two boys and a wife and family members. I can't take care of anybody if I don't take care of myself. If I let myself mm. become emotionally bankrupt, physically bankrupt, or just drop dead from stress, I have to take care of myself so I can take care of others. And that's what you're saying. And I said I like question nine coupled with it because you say, how much time do you spend looking at yourself in the mirror? Mm -hmm. You got to look at yourself in the eye and be honest about who you are and what you're doing. You have to take stock, and the book is really about that, taking stock on not only who I am, but how did I, what was the journey that got me to where I am? And then once I can take stock on that, I can seek to understand where I'm headed, where I want to be. On that first question, who's the most important person in your life? To your point, it should easily be answered by I am. But we do see that as being selfish. We see that as being uh, putting myself first, and I and we're taught almost innately at a young age that we should put all these other people first. Well, if I do that, where do I come in? Do I come seventh on the list, twelfth? Coupled with that question nine um, of the aspects of of really kind of once you can get to know yourself. Uh, how do you maneuver that and utilize that framework and that understanding in such a way that you draw benefit and those around you draw benefit? Um, I think that, kind of, that juxtaposition, Doc, of if I'm taking care of myself, they say it on the airplane, if the, the yeah. cabin pressure gets low, the mask is going to drop. What do they instruct you to do if you're traveling with an infant or a young person? Put yours on first. Well, why would you do that? Because if I have a young child beside me and I'm fumbling and mumbling trying to get theirs on and we both pass out, now we're in trouble. So put your mask on. In life, put your mask on first. Get yourself right. And then you can help that person. Because I believe, Doc, that in life we have a glass. And the job is to fill the glass, fill my glass first. And once my glass is full, everything that is left is for everyone else. They can have it all. But I, sh I should first fill my glass because too often we're running around this world pouring everyone else's glasses full and we have just a thimble full of water in ours. Uh, so I'm asking people to fill their glasses. Yeah, that's the only sustainable model. And mm -hmm. I hate that we've taught people that it's selfish for self-preservation. And I really try and teach people to test their thoughts for their rationality. I try to say there are just four simple things. I'd love for young men to write this down on a card or put it in their phone or whatever and 
keep it handy. When you have a thought, ask yourself, first off, is it based in fact? Because we tell ourselves things all the time, and they're based on feelings. I have people tell me all the time, and somebody tell me today, well, I feel like, and I wasn't trying to be rude, but I, I said, I don't care how you feel. I barely care how I feel. I feel yes. I, I, <laughs> what I care is what is. Yes. It's kind of like people say, I'm going to go to the store and get what we need. I was, well, no, wait a minute. <laughs> there's what you want, there's what you need, and then there's what you can afford. Yes. It really doesn't matter if you need a coat. What matters is can you afford to get a coat? Yeah. When you grow up poor, that's <laughs> it. You, you learn the difference between what you need and what, what you, you, what you can afford. We've got to get people to start dealing with the facts yes. again. Yes. And people don't deal with the facts enough. Well, and, and I think one of the struggles as well, Doc, is what we'll do is we'll tell ourselves a number of untruths. And if you tell yourself this untruth long enough, it becomes a reality for you. So how can we check ourselves about those untruths that we're lying to ourselves about? So one way, and I talk about in the book, and you referenced it, that getting in the mirror of your life, yeah, taking the time. And I think we avoid the mirror, doctor, because the man or woman that peers back at us in the mirror knows all, knows every aspect of us, that I can BS you and everyone around. But when I look at that man in the mirror, he knows all. Well, that's your question number three. Who knows you best? Mm -hmm. You do if you're telling yourself the truth. If I interrupted myself and said, I give them four questions you need to ask. Number one, is this true? Is it based on fact? Number two, is it in my best interest? Number three, does it get me what I want and need? And number four, does it protect and prolong my life? Mm. That's all you need. Ooh. If you're telling yourself something, test what you're saying with those four things. If it fails any of the four, yeah. You got to kick it out and create something that fits all four. Is it based in fact? Does it give me what I want and need? Does it protect and prolong my life? Those are the things you need to be looking at. A game changer for me that I heard you say many years ago, and I use it daily, is that what we do in life is we teach others how to treat us. Oh, isn't it the truth? Right? I mean, good, bad, or indifferent, we teach people how to treat us. So this is where it could be conflated and we can start to play around. Is this selfish or, but I'm going to teach people where the boundaries are with me. Um, my wife knows I get busy. And if I feel like I'm starting to move to a space of being overwhelmed, I'll tell her, and she now understands it deeply, that I need Corey time. Before I can be a good husband, before I can be a good pops, before I can be a good coach or a therapist, I must first be a good Corey for Corey. And once I can do that and feel strongly and in place with that, I can do a lot of things. I can, yeah. well, I can be supportive of a lot of ventures and opportunities, but I must first be a good friend, brother to Corey, to myself. Um, and I'm working on that every single day. I wake up every morning and literally get in the mirror and smile at myself. I'm not waiting for someone else to smile at me, Doc. Yeah. I'll do it first. Yeah. My dad passed away when he was 72. By that time, and I'm not saying I was the best kid in the history of the world, mm -hmm. but by the time he had passed away, I'd done okay. I'd gotten a bachelor's, master's, PhD, and postdoctoral fellowship in forensic psychology. I'd gotten married, had a nice family was, I think, 
pretty responsible contributing member of society had gone to school on a football scholarship and done a lot of things that you think would be reasonable. And I had known him for 42 years and not one time in my life did he ever say, I'm proud of you. Mm. Never. I never heard those words come out of his mouth. Mm. So you can say, well, he was a bad alcoholic. So he had a lot of issues for most of his life. So you can decide, well, I've got to damage personal truth. Or you can decide, sometimes I've got to give myself what I wish I could get from somebody mm-hmm. else. And that's why I like question number nine, mm. because sometimes you look and take stock, and sometimes you need to look at yourself in the mirror and give yourself what you wish you get from somebody else. you got to look yes. in the mirror and say, hey, I'm proud of myself as a father. I'm proud of myself as a husband. I'm proud of myself as a contributing member of society. And yes. if you don't get it, where you wish you get it, you got to give it to yourself till you get it from somewhere else. And you say, Doc, you use a couple of words, decide and choice. But life is filled with a series of decisions and choices. And my mom, when I, I had about 30 Division I football offers um, coming out of junior college, um, and I chose Long Beach State because a good friend of mine lived out here and was going to playing at USC My sister was living in the Norwalk, Long Beach area. So I decided Long Beach State. Um, And I got here, coming from a little small farming rural community in Kansas, I got here to Long Beach, and boy, there was diversity to the nth degree. Um, And I I wasn't comfortable. It was new territory. I wasn't comfortable. Two weeks go by, I call my mom. I think, I don't know if this is the best fit for me, Mom. Can you get a hold of... At this point, I think it was Coach Snyder's second year at Kansas State. Can you call Coach Snyder and ask him if that full scholarship is still available? I think coming back to Kansas may be what I need. She gave me the best advice that anyone has ever given, and it found its way into the book. She said, you made that choice. Now go about making that choice the right one. So too often we leave to chance that, and we fret about making the perfect decision, the perfect choice. And there is no such thing. But what we can do is go through our process to make the final call on what the decision is and every day go about making that choice the right one, outworking everyone around you, taking joy and pride in your work every single day. And if we do that consistently, we'll make the choice right by our hard work and preparation. I think it's simple, and I say this a lot, Doc. I think many of these ideas are very simple. That doesn't mean they're easy. But, but relatively speaking, they're pretty simple. So how do we do that? How do we make sure that we're leaning into that process in a way that is beneficial, not once again to us individually, but to our social networks and those around us that mean a lot to us? Well, that's where you learn something about yourself, right? I can't tell you that I'll always make the right decision, but I can tell you that I'll always work to make the decision right. Oh, boy. Come on now. That's what I do know about myself. I may not make the right decision, but I know I'll work my butt off to make the decision right. That's from commitment and hanging in there and you know getting up early, staying up late, yep. staying focused. And sometimes... I probably haven't made the right decision, but by working hard, Mm -hmm. 
I made it right. And right. maybe it'd have been an easier road somewhere else. I don't know because yeah, yeah. I never switched and went to the other road. That's you didn't right. go back to, you <laughs> didn't go back State. to Kansas State. You know, that's that grit and that grind, though. Yeah. Every day, if I hit the floor and I say I'm gonna dedicate to grinding forward and move with a level of grit and perseverance that will be unmatched, I'll be okay. What I'm concerned about in this day and time is that doesn't seem to be in the mindset of our current generation of young people that have these concierge parents that are smoothing out the bumps in the road for them. Your mother could have said, well, let me call him and let's find out. Instead, she said, no, you go assholes and elbows and work it out and you'll get it done. But John Haight and his partner, Greg Lukanoff, wrote the book, Coddling of a Generation. Mm. I think we're making it too easy sometimes because I think the way we learn about ourselves is by watching what we do. Yeah. That's how we learn about other people, right? It's a broad definition of self-attribution theory. So I use that descriptively, not clinically. But the way we learn about other people is we watch what they do. And if we have somebody on our staff that we get there in the morning and they're 15 minutes ahead of everybody else, lights turned on, coffee being made, mm-hmm. copiers on, and we just know rain or shine, ice or snow, whatever, you get there, you know they're going to be there. Right. You, you set your watch them. to them. Mm-hmm. Then you attribute to them dependability, reliability. You just know those are their characteristics. So you attribute those traits to them. That's how we form our own self-image and self-worth. We watch what we do. And if our parents take away our opportunity to observe ourselves mastering our environment, Mm. we don't attribute to ourselves the ability going to kindergarten. You walk up that sidewalk by yourself You reach up and open that door. You go in there and you spend that half a day. You roll out your mat and take your nap. You you eat your grapes. You do everything. (laughs) You come back out and get in the car. You go, I did that. I did it. I'll never forget my mother. There was a little girl that lived next to her in Texas. She came in and said, well, I met the little girl next door. I said, really? What'd she have to say? She said, well, she walked up to me and she said, I can zip, button, and tie. (laughs) (laughs) I said, what? She said, she came and said, I can zip, button, and tie. And I said, oh, really? Why did she say that? She said, I have no idea, but she was quick to show me. (laughs) She was proud of the fact that she had learned to zip, button, and tie. Yes. She attributed that to herself. She was very proud of it. And we need to let kids learn to zip, button, and tie. We need to let them learn to smooth out their problems. We need to let them overcome their challenges instead of jumping in there and taking care of everything. Yeah, and so what we're doing is allowing the opportunity for later having those big wins in life, those small wins. Every day there's some wins. Uh, We may not categorize it thusly, but we can find those small wins. Um, and a coach that that we had on staff at at Detroit, his name's J.D. Dubois, talked about engaging with the small wins as an athlete, not looking for the big, huge um, wins, but the small wins, each possession. And and I think I live and and really support others by that notion. The other piece that I thought was that important to what you just touched on is that generation after generation. Each generation will have a mission. France Fanon uh, talked about it many years ago, that each generation may have these missions that they may not even explicitly know what that, that mission may be, 
but they will either uphold it and get it done or deny it and let it fall to the wayside. So what are the generations that we've currently engaged with? What are they up to? Well, we've probably done a poor job as the elder generation of preparing them. We've allowed for everyone to get a medal 27th place. The medal looks just like first place. Yeah. So everyone's going to get it, it regardless win, lose, or draw. But life is not set up such in such a way. So what are we teaching them early on um, that may not necessarily or will not necessarily benefit them when the competitive juices flow and you've got to interview and it's down to you and that other person and will you fold or will you, or will you stand erect and get her done? It doesn't translate to life. It does not. You can do it while it's controlled. Yes. But everybody getting a trophy in a pizza party doesn't work in a competitive world. It doesn't. A couple of your questions that I thought were really good. You know, do you have an encouraging inner voice, mm. which is so important? But you also, I think it was your question 14, you said, what untruths are you telling yourself about your current existence? Yes. If your parents are enabling you, if universities are enabling you, if you are enabling you to live a fiction, yeah. you're going to be really lost out there. Talk about that. Is it question fourteen? Yeah, I, th I believe it is. You know the question numbers better than I do. I need to. <laughs> I need to catch up. Um, right. One of the things that that I learned um, and I kind of lean into and utilize a lot is um, there's an existentialist um, really grappling with the what are we exist? What are we here for? What do we exist for? His name is Jean Paul Sartre, and Sartre came up with the notion. Um, that I utilize a lot, and the notion was called bad faith. Aha. Uh, you found Special it. Question 14. Yeah. 14. <laughs> See, look at that. Untruths in your current existence. I love that. Thank you. I'm learning. So you think I haven't me. read this book. <laughs> <laughs> Get her done. So one of the things that Sartre said is that we will tell ourselves in bad faith a continuous series of untruths. So, for instance, if you're working a dead-end job that is barely allowing you to pay the bills and you hate going to work every day, you'll find a way to tell yourself an untruth that this is the only way I can make it. I could never quit this job. I'm, I'm barely making it with this job. So that untruth becomes my truth. I can't leave this job. But if we took the time to sit back and think about it, we do have options. There are things that you could do about it. Now, you may be nervous or scared about how to do this and what it'll ultimately look like. So you're filled with a, a version of anxiety about what that future could be. But the fact remains that the truth is you could do something about your current existence. So don't being fearful and anxious to a point of being paralyzed and being stuck in this dead end job. Sometimes we accept that as our lot in life. This is just what it is, and I can't change that. That's not true. Simply, this is not true. So what will you do today about your existence tomorrow? If you could get, even starting with one team, if you could get just one core group of young men to embrace that reality, you could start a ripple effect that, I think, could become a zeitgeist. 
I think people overlook the fact, they think we have to leap tall buildings in a single bound. I think people miss the fact that small changes across time add up to big results. We're here talking, you and I, in the beginning of November. The rest of this year is going to go by whether people are doing something about their circumstance or whether they're not. Mm -hmm. If you make little changes each day over the next 60 days, those 60 days are going to go by whether you're doing anything or not. You might as well make even small changes. People get overweight sometimes and say, oh, I'm so overweight. There's no coming back now. But if you lose a pound, a pound and a half a week for six months, and that six months Mm -hmm. is going to happen anyway, Yes. good grief. You can be 40 or 50 pounds lighter at the end of six months, and you think, would you like to lose 40 or 50 pounds? You go, oh, hell yes. (laughs) And you think, there's no way I can do that. Well, you know, a pound, a pound and a half a week doesn't seem like much. But it adds up across time. People get stuck in these comfort zones. I actually did some research about this one time, doctor, and people told me that their biggest fear, I thought their biggest fear was to take a risk and get out of their comfort zone. Mm. I thought it would be that they would fail, they would try for it and couldn't get it. But when I boiled the data down, their biggest risk was not that they would make a change, but that they would then be expected to maintain that Ah, change. Because I was talking to people, you know, they were out in the world and they said, okay, I make $50,000 a year. So I live in a neighborhood where the people make $50,000 a year. My friends make $50,000 a year. I drive a car for people that make $50,000 a year. So if I really get up on my hind legs and really work on sales and get up to $75,000 a year, then all of a sudden I'm going to start hanging out with people that make more money, maybe belong to a different club, maybe drive a different car. But now I got to expect myself to keep it up. Maintain. That's going to be a lot of pressure. Do I want that pressure? Well, Mm. that's why I love that old saying, pressure is privilege. If you don't want pressure, just do the third grade over every year. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Hell yes, you want pressure. Yeah, you you got to keep asking yourself. Lean just keep in. moving on. You know, That's people right. my age are usually retiring. I don't want to retire. I want to keep trying different things. Let's just keep it moving. You say something, keep it moving. It's I live by this, and they've come up with a kind of a metaphorical thing that I use in my therapeutic endeavors all the time, is that in life, we must be rivers, not ponds. A pond is a stagnant body of water. Beautiful. Stagnant, though. But a river is ever-evolving, regenerating, flowing, and moving. And in that movement, opportunity will not, not will it be that you will find it. Opportunity and success oftentimes will hunt you down if you're going about that work on a day-to-day approach. The other thing you talked about just a moment ago, talked about change. I think this is something that we need to slow down and think about. We can have, there's different versions of change. Um, So we call it first order or second order change. But if you start to really differentiate and and ask yourself, what change do I see? First order change is saying, I'm going to take all the pictures off the wall and repaint in a different color and put new carpet in and different furniture. You're going to walk into that space. It's going to look totally different. 
difference, but real deep, profound change, second order change is saying, I'm going to knock that wall down. And even if you put a new wall up, it will be different than it was before. You have changed the structure of that space. So we must engage and ask ourselves, what, what type of change am I seeking before I can move on it? The other thing that you touched on, I think is really important, is this idea around how we're talking to ourselves. So we're always continuously talking to ourselves. As I'm talking, Doc, you're talking to yourself. What am I going to ask next? Do I like what he said on that? Right. There's always conversations that are moving. If we can take the time to slow down and become aware of what those conversations in our head sound like, we can many times find out I'm really negative with myself. So in terms of weight loss, dang, Corey, you got to lose the weight. You're dummy. You lost it. Then you gained it back. I'll beat myself up. But if you had people take those negative thoughts and have them transcribed and have someone read those thoughts aloud to them. They'd be shocked. Yes. <laughs> yes. So you would. And if they read that to you, you would be get avoid them. You'd say, get that person away. But guess what? We're doing it to ourselves yeah. all the time. And you know what people don't realize is we talk at 120 words a minute. Now, my wife will gust up to 160 every once in a while. But- <laughs> Gust, <laughs> but we we talking about 120 <laughs> words a minute, but we think at 1,200 words a minute. Yeah. So if a bully tells us something, or we tell ourselves something, I've had women yeah. that said in the eighth grade they were walking through the cafeteria and they heard somebody say, "Oh, look at her fat ass." Yeah. And she might have been a beanpole, but they yeah. said that. Yes. And she heard it, and it might have heard it one time. But she starts repeating it at oh. a speed of 10x. See? 120 to 1,200. Boy. She starts repeating it over and over and over and over. Yes. That gets etched in her brain. Yes. That takes over. And this is actually a neurological change in the amygdala. It's like being on a racetrack with no exit ramp. Yes. And gets stuck. That's why that internal dialogue is so important. It is. You have that... Do you talk to yourself with encouraging inner thoughts yes. is one of your questions that right. you ask yourself. And we have to answer that, though, Doc, yeah. right? It's one thing yeah. to ask that question, critically important. If you don't do anything else, at least begin by being curious with yourself and asking. But once we gain awareness, that's the thing I love about awareness and consciousness. Once you attain any version or level of awareness or consciousness, you never get to turn it off as much as you may want to. You never get to turn that switch off. So the question that will always remain is, now that I'm aware, what will I do with this? What is the move forward? Um, and we can, we can play the games and trick ourselves, but we're now aware. So we can talk about unconscious bias and implicit bias. Um, I think the cousin of implicit bias is cognitive dissonance. We should want dissonance. We want to have the cognitive dissonance is just having that battle with yourself. New information comes. I say, oh, my God, I never thought about that. Didn't know that. Now the battle ensues. So now we can't blame it on unconsciousness. And that doesn't mean we're going to make the right choice and do the right thing, quote, unquote, all the time. But that dissonance is good. Yes. As you say, I was talking to Joe Rogan on Thursday last week down in Austin. He's a good friend of mine. And I was 
talking to him on his show, and I was telling him that dissonance or pain can be a really good motivator. Yeah. I was thinking back to when I was growing up as a kid, I used to go to my grandparents every summer and I would stay with them in the thriving metropolis of Mundy, Texas. <laughs> thriving metropolis. Yeah. I think there were 1,500 people oh, there. Oh, boy. Sounds like my hometown. Literally, there was one stoplight. Oh, boy. And it flashed. <laughs> and it got so hot there in the summer, you just look out in the backyard oh. and your dog just burst into flame. <laughs> it was so hot. But we would go to the swimming pool and stuff. And once in a while, we'd get stupid and walk across an asphalt mm. highway barefooted. <laughs> you know what happens? You get about halfway across Ooh, and you go, oh, my God. Bad choice. So you're in the middle of the highway and your feet are just melting. Okay, so what are you going to do? You're either going to run back. Uh-huh to the grass on this side or you're going to sprint to the other side. Yep. But what you're not going to do is stand there in the middle of that highway and let your feet melt. Right. That pain is going to cause you to move. move. You're either going to go one way or you're going to go the other. Now, yes. what I realized about that is people, therefore, when they feel that pain, they resolve quickly. quickly. I used to work with juries a lot. That's how I met Oprah, actually, Yeah, working on her trial up in Amarillo. Juries make their minds up really quick. Remember growing up, you'd be wrestling around with your siblings and break a lamp. There is a dead heat race to get to mama first. Yes, to tell your version. Whoever has primacy yes. has a better chance of surviving. Yes, sir. So you want to tell your story first. <laughs> and that jury is going to make their mind up really early. Yeah, yeah. So... Once you get somebody to take a position and go to one side of the road or the other, how hard is it to get them to come off that cool grass back, back. onto that hot highway and yeah. come all the way to the other side? Yeah. People make up their mind early, go back to where it's comfortable, and then it's real hard to get them to move their position, yes. go back into that pain, and come to the other side. And some of these people that are in life right now are so stuck yeah. that getting them to come out of that position they're in, go through the pain of change to get to a new place is real hard. It's troubling. And that's what you're doing with these 40 questions. You're luring them back onto yeah. that hot highway to get to a new place. And you're doing it a step at a time instead of asking them to jump across the highway. You're saying, all right, first, Who's the most important person in your life? Do you allow yourself to dream about what you mm. want? Do you know who you are? Do you look in the mirror? Do you realize what you're saying to yourself? You're asking these people, and the reason I love your book so much is these are stepping stones yes. that take them across that hot highway to get them where they're going. That's why I love your 40 questions so much. You've got a billion things that, that you, you've made me think about. I'll see if I can capture a couple. Um, one thing that, that I am, I live by, is an African proverb, and that's the, really the premise of the book. And the proverb is, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Grab an ear. So, right? So that, those 40 questions or conversations to hold with self, the overarching question, how am I doing? 
those bite-sized approaches to those small conversations can help move you. The other thing that I talk a lot about that I think is really important, Doc, is how do we view or engage pain? I see that pain should oftentimes be the best indicator of growth. That if I'm going to grow, think about the things that you've done in your life that were really good. That if you go to those days, weeks, months previous to that moment that was beautiful, there was probably some associated pain, discomfort. Well, we, we, what we'll tend to do is lean away from discomfort. No one wants discomfort. No one wants pain. But if we can reframe that into saying that pain, that discomfort may be telling me that I may be on the edge of birthing something quite beautiful, labor pains that a woman goes through. Why do you get through it? Because you know what is to come. Um, so recognizing all of the, that discomfort and, and that chaos that we oftentimes will have to ins- deal with, that if we understand it or see it as an opportunity for that growth is important. Nelson, I'll, and I'll shut up. Nelson Mandela said a quote that I also live by, that in life we never lose. We either win or we learn. So we're going to take some lumps. But it's not just a loss for the sake of a loss, that it must be a loss, quote unquote, loss for the sake of learning from that. I had coaches. George Allen was my head coach at Long Beach State and Willie Brown. And they always said, hey, you're going to make mistakes. We're not mad at you for making mistakes. First of all, if you're going to make them, make them going 100 percent, 100 miles an hour. But if you're going to make mistakes, don't make the same mistake over and over. Learn from it and make new mistakes. Seek the new mistake, because that means I've, I've got the lesson from that old mistake. Um, and I think a lot of this, Doc, is just reframing how we see the world, how we see ourselves. Again, simple, not necessarily easy, not necessarily complex, but it's something that we can do. But what you're doing is you've got people engaging themselves. That's what I'm saying about the 40 question. You got people engaging themselves. And I play tennis every day. I started college on a football scholarship and got a head and neck injury, so I was over. So I took up tennis and finished on a tennis scholarship, Mm. which was a lot easier on my body. And so now I play tennis every day of my life. And if I don't finish playing tennis and have to wring my socks out (laughs) and I'm not just completely exhausted, at least for 30 minutes afterwards, I don't feel like I've had a workout. If you just go down there and stand around, I could stand around at the bus stop. What's the point? Why get dressed, put on your tennis shoes, you're not going to go down and work out. You got to push yourselves. Every day. I tell people, if you got a job without pressure, you don't really have a job. No. You're just going down somewhere and getting paid. Yeah. Like I say, nobody wants pain and nobody wants conflict, perhaps. But if you work through it and you enter the conversation, you enter the whole transactional process at a higher level the next day, then you're moving up. You're moving up. And you got to be trying to get better every day at being a parent, at being a wife, at being a husband, at being a citizen, at being something. You want to be the river, not the pond. And to do that, you've got to put something into it. I say to our players all the time, if you step on the court and go an hour and a half at practice, it's what I pray, usually an hour and a half. 
if you step off the court at the end of the practice and you didn't get better, you just blew an hour and a half of your day yeah. that you'll never get back. Yeah. So as you begin that process of walking on the court, committing to self that I'm going to find a way to get better, I'm going to get whatever it is in whatever fashion or manner that better, which is a very relative term, that you can commit to bettering yourself for that next stretch of time um, and pursuing that with a vigor and a zest um, that pushes you. Again, the individual gets better, but that means they show up in the world as a better version of themselves. And now that social network is better because of the work that they've done. Well, I think that's what you're doing. The book, and we've been talking about it the whole time. The book is How Am I Doing? It's by Dr. Corey Yeager. I hope you feel like you've gotten to know him as we've been talking this whole time. You can tell I'm a fan of his and a fan of the book. And you know, I don't endorse a lot of books, but I'm endorsing this one. I think it is something that you won't read and put down. I think it's something you will read and go back to. I think it's something you will read and talk to your friends and your family about. It'll be something that will kind of become a go-to manual for you. I think it's something that you'll go back to and look at again and again and again. When you buy it, you want to buy several copies because you're going to immediately want to give it to the people that you care about in your life. So save some shipping and get four or five copies at a time (laughs) so you can give it to the people in your life because it is a gift. Mm. I hope you'll pick it up and look at it. Corey, I appreciate you taking this time to sit down and talk to me. I hope we can do this again because there's more that we can talk about. I would love to dig into this deeper. I've got 10 other things that we can talk about, and hopefully when we get a chance, we'll sit down and do this again. I I appreciate you more than you know. Um, The opportunity to sit with you is um, it's been a dream come true. Just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. My gratitude is through the roof. Well, it's been very stimulating and thought-provoking, and we'll talk again soon and follow up on this some more then. Thank you, good doctor. Thank you, sir. 